I'm just, uh, I'm an author who advocates intermittent fasting. I've been writing about it since 2006. Cool. So, um, in this interview, uh, we are definitely going to talk about intermittent fasting as well. Um, you know, when, when you're hosting a podcast that is related to fitness, at some point you get into a tricky situation because I'm pretty sure that 100% of the people listening to this podcast know what intermittent fasting is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and if they came here to check out this episode because of you, then they will definitely know once again what inter intermittent fasting is. So um, maybe I will start with a very um, kind of weird question. Maybe this is actually not a good idea to start with this one, but I'll do it anyway. You know, You've written the book Eat, Stop, Eat in 2006, is that correct? That's, yeah, it was published in 07, and I was writing all through 2006. Right, okay. So you've definitely been one of the people who pioneered the whole concept. And, you know, I would be curious, after having written about this topic uh, on and off for, you know, 11, 12 years, I would be wondering, are there any particular things that now you view differently about the topic of intermittent fasting or you've changed your mind about or kind of discoveries, things that maybe you wish you would have stated uh, from the get-go? Anything like this that come to mind for you? Good question. Really good question. Okay, so if I were to have gone back and rewrote Eat, Stop, Eat, no, not really. Like I, I like the flexibility that's put into it. So it's once or twice a week um, for 24 hours. I probably would have addressed the rest of the fasting times, right? So my research was really on 12 to 72 hours. That was sort of the, um, the time frame I chose to study. And I left out everything from Eat, Stop, Eat that wasn't sort of a 24-hour time because what I didn't want to do is if, if I addressed all the other fasting windows, right, whether it's 12 hours or 72, I thought I would open myself up to... Um, possibly being too vague about what I wanted people to do. Uh, in retrospect, I think that could have been uh, at least a chapter in the book, just sort of explaining what happens during longer fasts or shorter fasts. But other than that, uh, the, the way Eats Up Eat was written in 06 is still the way I practice it today, which is, you know, 24-ish hours, once or twice a week, and, and that's it. Right. Um, how do you, um, now that... I mean, when you wrote your book, intermittent fasting was very much a, a new thing. You know, I guess we could we could say the same thing about um, you know Martin Burkhan's work. Uh, I'm sure you know who who he is. Oh yeah, when when you guys came up with this whole thing, then people went crazy upon the idea of not eating every couple of hours at least. Um, now that it's definitely have grown out to something that is a that is a thing in the fitness world. You know, it's I mean, I it's definitely. Uh, you could call it a trend, I guess, which has or, or only grown stronger over the years. How do you kind of how do you like or how do you evaluate the whole intermittent fasting movement that kind of exploded over the course of the past maybe you know five years or so? Yeah, you know, it's not as bad as other movements in the sense that I think that most people in health and fitness do view fasting more as a tool than a way to identify yourself, right? So. There are people out there who wear the I am paleo t-shirts or I am keto t-shirts or I am vegan t-shirts. There aren't a, lot, a whole lot of people walking around with like an IF t-shirt, right? We, yeah. Most of us view it as something we do, but not uh, as a way we define ourselves um, as kind of what nutrition club we belong to. And the cool thing about that is, you know, there are vegan fasters, paleo fasters, keto fasters, high protein fasters, low protein fasters. It fits into everything. And that's why I think it was probably as successful as it ended up being. I mean, the I can't speak for Martin, but I remember, uh, you know, back in 07, he was seeing the same thing I was seeing, which was we, we both completely independently never met, published our ideas. And then we spent basically like three years defending ourselves. Like it was just <laughs> a constant barrage of you guys are morons. You got to eat every three hours and you're going to lose all your muscle and your, your metabolism is actually going to inverse and even though you're not eating, you're going to gain fat, right? Like you're going to have a, a metabolic rate of negative 200. Like, like we were constantly um, just covering the same questions and arguments over and over again to the point where it, then it finally became accepted. But always accepted more as a tool, more as something to do uh, than sort of a, a way to define yourself and, and what nutrition club you belong to. So it, right. it's very good that way. It's very different than a lot of the other uh, diets because it does open up to being a useful tool for so many different people as opposed to 
what a lot of diets are, which is closes you off to a very strict set of rules, what you can eat, can't eat, believe, not believe, etc. Yeah, right. Um, so it's cool that you mentioned um, having to defend yourself about, you know, the, the attacks or criticisms which uh, were predicated on the fact that you should eat every couple of hours. Uh, you know, on my podcast, I've had on a lot of people who um, are into natural bodybuilding, giving advice, even published papers on that topic. Maybe maybe some of these names uh, you would know yourself since you're in this crowd as well. Um, kind of if, if I'm looking at natural bodybuilding circles and, and sort of just the scientific-minded people who give advice to people who want to improve their body composition based on current evidence, I guess if I had to summarize their stance on intermittent fasting, it would be something like, you know, it's it's a tool that you can use and it's it's generally fine. The timing of your nutrients is not as important as we once thought, but it's probably not the ideal way to preserve as much muscle as you can while losing as much fat. My question to you would be, if you would be giving advice to a person who would say, um, you know, in this next whatever 10 to 20 weeks, I want to lose as much fat as possible in the most effective way possible while preserving as much lean tissue as possible. And, you know, every gram counts for me. And really, I, I at the end of it, I want to step on a bodybuilding stage potentially or, or just want to do a photo shoot. Um, would you say to the, this person that they are leaving nothing on the table if they're using, for example, one of your protocols with the Eat, Stop, Eat as opposed to a more kind of traditional way of just dropping calories linearly and eating every couple of hours? Yeah, you know, if they were, so if we're talking about someone who's actually going to step on stage <clears throat> or um, a multi-million dollar celebrity, you know, who's taking the reins from Hugh Jackman and is going to play Logan, uh, Wolverine, right? Like people who have a lot on the table and not just your average person. Um, leanness will always trump muscle mass, right? So I don't think muscle mass loss is a, a large concern, Um but fat loss is, is sort of the, the most important part there. So I, I don't think they would be leaving anything on the table because you're, you know, the amount of muscle you lose in a given day is kind of like a, a fixed thing. Um, it, it just depends on a number of factors. But throwing fasting into the mix, you're, yes, you're going to lose a small amount of, of protein going to be oxidized. Might not even like a small amount of the protein being oxidized was muscle. But that number is fairly constant. So it's, you're still oxidizing protein and, and losing a little bit of muscle if you're grossly overeating or if you're fasting, right? It's, it's just part of the natural human physiology. So to pretend like somehow eating 10,000 calories is going to prevent that is, is not true, right? So you're, you're going to be losing a small amount regardless, and then you're going to be replacing it. Uh, hopefully, you're, you're weight training properly and eating properly to the point where you're replacing more than you're losing, and that's muscle growth. So to use a fast, you know, even if it's once a week, to try to balance everything out and make sure that fat loss is on track. I just don't see any true arguments against that. You know, the idea that that 24 hour period would cause a massive loss of, of muscle is unfounded. But what it would do is help keep you on track with the actual fat loss component, right? So if, even if you're, let's say you're eating not quite at a large deficit during the week because you are worried about building muscle, et cetera. And then you kind of clean up that missing deficit with a 24-hour fast. That's a very viable approach to building muscle mass while limiting the fat loss or even building muscle mass for five, six days and then losing some fat on days six or seven type of things. So, um, but from an evidence-based point of view, again, remember that the you have a cognitive conflict of interest sometimes when it comes to research studies you design them in such a way based on your assumptions right so if your assumptions are this is the way we do things this is the hypertrophy range you know of, of weight training and this is the proper way to eat it's going to be reflected in the the volume of literature that's available to us and i think that still to this day the volume of literature on both hypertrophy training and fat loss training so not fat loss in a large general sense of a, a more populational base but like specifically for athletes or um fitness competitors you're dealing with a very limited amount of research done by a very limited amount of researchers uh, who all have sort of the same uh cognitive conflicts of interest so you from an evidence point of view yeah the traditional way is going to be the most supported but it's most supported because it is a traditional way so it but from my standpoint, I, do, I don't see how, if you're just looking at the logic behind everything, why intermittent fasting could not be used in that exact example you provided.
Right. Yeah. And, and to add to that equation, uh, also the fact that I'm, I'm sure you've seen at least some of these uh, kind of upcoming s- studies and, and experiments where they compared linear diets to nonlinear diets, which, which again mm-hmm. was kind of a, more of a new phenomenon, I think, at least I may be wrong, when you came up uh, or when you came out with your work. But now we actually, in some studies, we see better uh, lean mass uh, retention or just keeping more muscle. Yeah, yeah. When, when yeah. someone is compressing their deficit into one or two days. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Exactly. And that research wasn't available. Like in 06, 07, probably all the way up to maybe 2010 to 12-ish, that, that just didn't exist. But now that intermittent fasting is you know, in the common think, then you have those researchers or at least the new group of, of researchers coming up are now saying, I'd like to look into this. So again, it's sort of how the, um, you know, what is actually being done on the fringe of health and fitness eventually bleeds into the center where then it actually gets research because it is a popular topic. So we'll only see more intermittent fasting research as the years go on. Cool. So, um, you know, uh, like I said, I don't want to exclusively focus this discussion on intermittent fasting. I mean, it will keep coming up here and there, but you know, I, Mm -hmm. I mean, um, listening for over the years, like most of the interviews and podcasts that you've done with other people. And you know, what really, appeal to me and your approach always is just a very kind of balanced uh, longevity sustainability oriented approach to just improving body composition dieting and, and and building muscle so you know i would be curious like i mean i know that you've had your times when you were really neurotic about you know eating every three hours and just uh, yeah. whatever crushing all the weights and risking injury in the gym and, and just doing whatever it takes but now what is sort of the peel on code for for building a good physique over the long term in terms of nutrition and training like what do you think are the non-negotiable musts and must nots that one has yeah, beautiful over, the, over the over the over time yeah so over the years what i've learned is that <clears throat> it's a really interesting phenomenon but um excessive knowledge of a topic or a phenomenon doesn't change that topic or phenomenon right so uh, the more i learn about fasting um, the, the more I dive into the, the hormones and the protein signals and everything that happens when you're fasting, the more knowledge I gain doesn't change what happens when I fast. So if I fast and my neighbor fasts, we both fast for 24 hours, and my neighbor, she's never read a, a bloody thing about fasting, but I know every single thing that's happening, the end result is we both see the same results, right? So what I've learned is that a, a lot of um, staying lean, and building muscle in a sort of a long-term view, right? Like I'm 40 now, and I started this whole thing in, in my late 20s, is really just realizing that your your body knows what to do, and half the time, you just got to get out of its way. I feel that a lot of health and fitness right now is based on the concept of interventionalism, right? You've got to intervene, right? If you want something to happen in your body, you've got to force it to happen. You've got to intervene. You've got to hack the system. You've got to you know bend it to your will. And what I've really realized is that it's, it's actually a lot of times it's the opposite, right? The, your pro athletes with just phenomenal bodies, they're not overthinking their training. Half the time they have a strength and conditioning coach saying like, hey, Joe, do four sets of eight. And Joe just does four sets of eight and doesn't think his way, it doesn't overthink it. So for me, for fasting, it's the same, right? Is that you just fast you know, and you just go about your day and you don't worry about it. You don't think about it. You don't try to hack it. Uh, and then with weight training, it's the same thing. You just, you get the work done and you challenge the muscle group, right? So you, you put in a high amount of effort and then you let that muscle group recover. And it's, <clears throat> we, we constantly are trying to sort of hack that process. And with the exception of, you know, dosing with anabolic steroids, there just hasn't been a hack. I mean, when it comes down to it, the same people not like the same people, the same message gets told by most people if they've been in the game long enough, right? They, we really complicate our workouts and then we come up with really cool ways to hack the workout. And then after a couple of years of training, we realize they're like, oh, you know what? You're, you're probably just good with really high amount of effort on the compound lifts, then get out of the gym and recover. Yeah. And it, it's funny because I can, I've been in this game so long. I mean, prior to writing about um, fasting, you know, I worked in the supplement industry since I was 22 at one of the world's largest supplement companies. And I watched people who were, you know, avid bodybuilders. And then they would, they left that industry and they got into our industry, which is writing about health and fitness. 
And so many of the people in our industry came from the supplement industry that I know a lot of them. And it's fun to watch the pro. I can almost tell you based on what the person's into, how old they are, right? So if they're right now massively into bulking, right? You're, you're late 20s. It just seems to be bulking kind of works in your late 20s. If, if your workouts are overly, overly complicated, you're probably early 20s because you're starting to get really great results and you're trying to like figure out how you can intervene and make them even better. But if all of a sudden you're kind of just realizing you just got to put a high amount of effort in and then recover and that injuries are a concern, but you can still build muscle and you can build strength with kind of these core movements, but more abbreviated workout, you're probably either 30 and above. And then if you're really into like, okay, you got to avoid it. The key to this whole thing is just consistency and not getting injured. You're probably above 40. Now you can be obviously not within those ranges, but I can tell you that the person you're reading and getting your ideas from is within those age, age ranges. But the, the whole Pilon core philosophy is really just getting out of the way of your body and let it do what it does, right? So if you fast and you are a living human being, during that fast, you're losing non-water body weight. It's 100% guaranteed impossible not to be, right? So I don't have to worry about it. Same thing is if, if I really pushed it in the gym today and, and my estimated one rep max is higher than it was last week, and then I spent the next couple of days recovering well, the chances are high that I've built strength and a small amount of muscle, right? So, and there's not much I can do at 40 to intervene in that process. So I just let it happen, right? And that, that seems to be that sort of um, simpleton approach to it all <clears throat> and not overthinking it and not, you know, forcing my knowledge of the mTOR pathway to somehow make me believe that I'm going to build more muscle. If I just give up on that and realize it's just, the work I put in the gym and the time I spend recovering, everything becomes a lot easier because the stress and anxiety isn't there nagging at you that somehow you have to intervene in the whole process. So it's just letting it do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. No, it's, there's just so many interesting points you bring up. And, and I think if I look back at when I made the best progress, both in terms of fat loss and, and building muscle, it was always during those times when I just settled for some simple strategy and just followed it mindlessly and just didn't think about it. And the plateaus and stalls always came when I was trying to hack the system too much and was trying to periodize everything too much and, uh, exactly yeah, trying to be yeah, more smarter. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, actually, Something that I've seen, maybe actually it was just the other day on your Instagram, a, a quote which said, I think, everybody has time for health because the thing, the most important things about health are the things that you don't do. Was it something like this? Yeah, it's the things you choose not to do to generally, you know, if you look at what we traditionally believe to be unhealthy practices, with the exception of, you know, just sitting on the couch all day and not moving. Right, but a lot of other things are, are active choices of things you did to negate your health. Right, whether it's smoking or excessive drinking or excessive eating, um, you know, excessive amounts of stress, staying in a, a really high stress job because you like the money, but the stress is killing you. That's your choice, right? You you chose to actively pursue that. Um, if you're in a horrible marriage, and again, that that stress is is causing a lot of GI dysfunction, etc., you're actively choosing <laughs> to stay in that marriage. So a lot of health and fitness is, is avoiding bad things. A lot of health is just simply saying no to things more than it is adding more and more things to do to your life, right? Yeah. So yeah, I really do believe that when you look at people who are generally perceived to be healthy, we we focus on what they do, but most of the time the answer is what they don't do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, a question that I have to you, I have for you on on the topic of, um, of fat loss. So, I mean, you as, as a person who had been writing uh, to people content you've been emailing i mean i see your emails weekly you're always have something interesting to say about nutrition and, and fat loss or building muscle um i mean it's pretty well known that uh, overeating and obesity is a, is a problem around the world and uh, you know there are a lot of uh, interesting philosophical and physiological physiology physiology based discussions around what's the reason behind that and of course, it would be probably overly simplistic to just say that people are weak and lazy. Probably it's true to all, about all of us to some degree, but there's some uh, more complex issues behind that topic. Like after being in the fitness industry for over a decade, what are, I mean, if you had to summarize it in a couple of sentences, why do you think we are just so fat as a society? Why couldn't we figure this problem out by now? It's a great question. <clears throat> um, I think there's a number of problems, right? So when we started doing large scale research on sort of, you know, 
thousands of people. And we use the method of trying to figure out how much these people ate by asking them how much they ate. Yeah. Right. So you can imagine if you're overweight and you know you're overweight and you know you're being judged because you're overweight and then some lean PhD in a white lab coat sits across the table from you is like, so what did you eat last week? Mm-hmm. You know, even if you're not purposely forgetting some foods, you, you, it's a very inaccurate way to measure how much food people ate. Yeah. But for some reason, we thought asking people how much they ate last Tuesday is a great way to figure out how much they ate last Tuesday. <laughs> right. So <clears throat> what that research told us was that uh, people who are suffering from obesity actually eat the same amount as lean people, if not a bit less. Yeah. So from that research, we thought, well, if they're eating the same amount, but they're overweight, and in fact, during the process of this study have actually gained weight, then logic would dictate it has to be the energy out part of the equation, and these people are have suffer from low metabolism. So we need to find ways to increase their metabolism. They need to jog, they need to walk, they need to... Um, you know, look at the thermic effect of the foods they're eating. We just, everything we can do to possibly get their metabolisms up to match the lean people. But then unfortunately, you know, a decade and a half, two decades later, when we started using doubly labeled water as a way to sort of start measuring energy expenditure, yeah. and we started studying the um, viability and truthfulness of food frequency questionnaires, we realized two things. We realized, oh, uh, the the total energy expenditure of these people is roughly the same, if not higher, than lean people. And the research is also showing these food frequency questionnaires are unreliable for some populations. Crap. You know, it's not it's not their metabolism. It's not this slow metabolism epidemic sweeping the nation that's causing, you know, weight gain. It's something else. But metabolism is already now in the lay literature. It's in the common person's think. It's in their process, right? So they're skinny friend is skinny because they got a high metabolism and they have a low metabolism. That's just the way it is. So we've been chasing moving goalposts and we've been chasing um, science with the wrong assumptions for so long. It's very hard to tease it out. I don't think we're going to find one answer uh, except for the one that, you know, there is more matter coming into the body than there is leaving. But the question is why? And I think the answer is a very holistic one, right? It's going to be environmental. It's going to be based on, media and habits and food norms you know it's just it's so much more complicated than you you can't look at someone who's carrying more weight than they want to and say oh hey you you should you should eat less it's like they they, they, they know yeah right they're well aware of that um and there's some sort of issue behind that that we, we need to address and so you know we spent decades calling people who are overweight lazy which which probably didn't do much for helping them, and now we're spending time telling them, "Well, oh, you just you just eat too much." Which again, it's not really helpful information, right? It's yeah, like exactly. telling someone who's poor is like, "You you need more money," yeah. right? That would solve this whole "you're poor" thing. Is you just need to get more money. Right? It's not a useful <laughs> piece of advice. Uh, so I, it's going to start at a young age. You know, once we figure out what component of is genetic and what component of these eating habits and eating cues are learned, um, and it's but a lot of it's going to have to do with with dealing with children. And it's I do not think the answer is just teaching kids to eat quote unquote healthy food, right? Because there's a lot going on with how we view food. In fact, if you're someone who, as a child, was constantly denied treats. So it it was built up as something that's desirable because you can't have it or you could only have it on the rarest of occasion. So it's got this sort of desirability built into it. And then you become an adult and you can eat as you want. You know, perhaps because that food's been built up to be so desirable, you you crave it more. It, it, you know, I, that's just, I'm throwing that out there as a possibility, yeah. not as a, a hardcore yeah. answer. But we're not going to solve it just by explaining to people that they're eating too much, right? Or not, And we're not going to solve it just by going to someone who's overweight and being like, what you need to do is eat a ton more protein. Yeah. Right? It, it, there's way more to it than that. And, you know, people like myself, right? So I was 216 pounds at 5'10 when I was in my late 20s. That was by choice, yeah. right? So a an idiot 20-year-old who's bulking and then loses all that weight for competition is much different from someone who spent 
30 years wishing they were leaner and just haven't been able to get there. Exactly. Right. So just because my personal experience has been, oh, well, if you're 216 and you want to be on stage at 172, you just got to eat less and, uh, and track what you're eating. But that's a very easy answer to give because my weight gain was artificial. I purposely did it in the name of bulking because it was a, you know, that's what people did back then. Yeah. You know, my experience with food, my relationship with why I ate, you know, I wasn't 216 because I was stress eating. I was 216 because I was force feeding myself to get up to that high of a weight. So my experience is much different than someone who's truly suffering from a, a style of eating they've had for decades that's caused them to gain weight even though they didn't want to. So yeah, we're not going to, my personal opinion is we're not really going to get there anytime soon because we're so focused on the intake of, of food, you know, as, as if it's separate from the person and their environment and, and their friends and their family, what they do for a living and all of that stuff, that until we really figure everything out, how it all connects, we're going to be stuck with dealing with obesity for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like, um, this uh, this quote I, I know that you like to reference this quote as well from Louis C.K. about uh, the meal is not over when I'm full but it's over when I hate myself. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you know, as we know, that's not really true. I, I think I actually heard this from you somewhere that in er any given meal, someone could have eaten more, and that's exactly yeah. And so it's not like most most people who are walking around a bit heavier than they would want to are just out of control binging all the time. It's just a lack of good habits and probably a bit of a component of having a wrong mindset around uh, around food. I think it, it comes down to simple things like that. So, so with that, actually, my question to you as, um, I mean, maybe I'm just seeing the highlight reel, but, you know, from what I'm seeing about your kind of presence, you're always in great shape. You always have uh, some sort of a visible six-pack, um, and that has been the case for a number of years. So what have been some big key rocks or, or key components in your own journey that allowed you to maintain, um, you know, great shape all the time? Like, what are the biggest uh, kind of bullet points that are worth uh, highlighting there? I um, All right. So <clears throat> one of the major realizations I had, I was um, home. This was this pre-kid. It might have been just before having kids. And, uh, and my wife was out and I think I was watching like hockey on TV, just, just a, a lazy night. Right. And I crushed an entire bag of cookies, like just devoured it. And I was laying on the couch and my stomach was just churning. Like, you know, nothing good is happening, right? It's a combination of you're bloated and your stomach's hot. And just like that, that was a stupid idea. And I realized I'm like, you know, I'm 29, I think it's, yeah, around 29, maybe even pushing 30 prior was born. Yeah. So 29. And I'm like, I've, been a kid like I've had my turn right I've gone to birthday parties and eaten eaten cake until I puked I've had Halloween you know where you just eat so much candy you get like this crushing headache I'm, I've had my turn eating like a child and, and I'm an adult now right and it's so I have to make the decision to eat responsibly right it's very different <laughs> when you're when you're a kid because you you have these brief periods of, of overeating and then for whatever reason, the way you regulate your weight, you know, whether it's you ran around the backyard like a crazy kid for hours or, or you just didn't eat afterwards or whatever the case may be, the regulation works well, at least for me when I was a kid. But as an adult, it just doesn't, doesn't work like that. You have to put a little bit of mind power into it and realize, you're like, if I wanted to, you know, I've, I've got $20 to my name, I could drive down and just buy an aisle of cookies. It's completely possible. So I have to decide not to right and so that since that's ridiculous since no one on this call is like no i'm actually i'm with you i'm gonna go buy an aisle of cookies so we roll that out that's ridiculous so i'm like okay, well, i'm gonna go buy three bags of cookies and eat them still most people on this call will be like that's that sounds kind of dumb don't don't do that so then you break it down to okay well i'm gonna buy a box of cookies and eat it by myself and you're still kind of sitting there going like dude you're you're 40 you don't need to eat a box of cookies by yourself right so you just have to take it down to a sort of what, what is an actual responsible way to eat which is you can have a couple cookies. You just can't eat the whole box. And, and, and realizing that and kind of thinking your way through that helps keep you lean. The other thing is, um, and I still fall prey to this, is you read a blog post or you listen to a podcast and you get super hyped on a magic food, right? So it's whether it's coconut oil or olive oil or butter or peanut butter or, or cheesecake or donuts, whatever it is. So all of a sudden you're like, that's, that's the bad. I can eat as much of that as I want. And it just, it turns into muscle. 
And then three weeks later, you're like, I'm gaining weight, right? Like, it's not muscle, right? And just realizing there aren't magic foods, like to stop looking for the holy grail of magic macronutrient combination or the right color combination on your plate and just realize it doesn't exist and just stop trying to fake your way into not eating responsibly, right? It's like you, you don't get to do it. And I know that, you know, but you're like, yeah, but so-and-so on Instagram crushed an entire birthday cake and he's lean. And like, yeah, he did it once. You don't know what his life is like. You know, he, he could be 22. He could have, you know, like not eaten for a week before and a week after. It doesn't mean you get to do it. Right? And it's just you need to eat responsibly. You need to stop looking for magic foods. You need to realize that it's the consistency that's going to keep you looking halfway decent at 40. Um, same with the gym, right? Don't do stupid stuff in the gym that gets you hurt because your consistent effort in the gym is what keeps you looking muscular into your 40s, 50s, and 60s. You know, I could really easily, the gym is, I'm, I'm looking back at it right now. It's like 10 feet away from where I'm sitting. I could easily think, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to load up the bench press with 450 and I'm going to do some eccentrics. Like I'm going to unrack it, then lower it as slow as I can in, into the pins. I'll set the pins maybe two inches above my chest and I'll do that a couple times because eccentrics build muscle. And then we can do another call and we can talk all about my shoulder injuries, right? Because I will blow apart. I'm not um, conditioned to that kind of, of training right now. Uh, so doing dumb stuff like that, jumping on, you know, because someone on Instagram was doing it and I thought that's the key, right? It's just jumping into super heavy eccentrics is going to be the key to building muscle. Again, I'm looking for magic training, right? So when you're looking for magic, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> whether it's food or training, it's when you get off the rails. So if you know, for most people who aren't into fitness, it's just the message of you've got to constantly think about what eating responsibly actually means to you. And if you're in fitness, because lots of people who are super knowledgeable about fitness still battle with weight gain, a lot of us is because we're looking for the magic training program or the magic food that we can get away with eating, right? In a very self-centered mindset of finding ways where I can eat as much as I possibly want and not gain weight, right? So not as much as appropriate or the much as I should eat, but I want to be able to eat 50,000 calories a day and have a shredded six pack, right? Because it's just all about me and how much I want to eat. <laughs> so it's getting rid of that mindset, just realizing the magic foods don't exist. And it's just responsible, consistent eating and responsible, consistent training that, that does the trick. Yeah, that's very well said. And and since you you mentioned um, doing dumb stuff on the on the bench press, I've heard you mention a couple of times how you managed to blow up blow up your shoulders a couple of times in your uh, training history. Um, any kind of lessons that you've learned about training over the years uh, and not blowing up your shoulders, but instead blowing up your muscles in a good way? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. So if you I'm a big fan of estimated one rep maxes as a, a good way to track where you are in the gym. So I'd like to use the, the Epley equation. I think I'm saying it yeah, right. Yeah. And the Epley equation, I mean, I'm sure it's not perfect, but it's consistent, mm -hmm. right? So I don't actually care, you know, if Epley suggests that my estimated one rep max is 205 pounds, it doesn't really matter to me if my true one rep max is 200 or 207 pounds, as long as I have a number to work with, right? Yeah. And so what using those equations tells you is that if you can squat 200 pounds for eight reps, that jumping to squatting 200 pounds for nine reps is actually a very large increase in your estimated one rep max. I don't, I don't have the numbers in front of me and I'm not a savant, so I can't do it in my head. Let's just say it's a seven pound increase. Mm -hmm. The chances that you increased your lifting ability by seven pounds in the six days you've been recovering from your last squat session is pretty minimal. Yeah. You know? And so what will probably happen is since you did do 200 pounds for eight reps and you're logicking that you should be able to do 200 for nine reps now, you'll probably do 200 for nine reps, but you're not going to go as low or maybe you hinged a bit more at the hips or maybe you know the form fell apart just a bit, but you got it. Yeah. Well, then what do you do the next week? Probably 200 for 10, right? Yeah. Because you just got 200 for 9. 200 for 10, you, you may even get. I mean, you might be on a roll here, but now you didn't go as low. And now you're a bit, you're, you know, you've, you've widened your stance out a little bit. Um, your back's starting to hurt a little bit, mm -hmm. but you got it. And th this is how we end up with injuries, is not realizing, you know, the Im immense ask you're putting on your body when you're just jumping up by a rep. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's realizing there's a lot of training, a lot of effort to go into a one rep increase. Uh, and the same happens with when you're like, well, okay, Brad, but I'm going to not do, I did 200 for eight. 
I'm not going to try to do 200 for nine. I'm going to up the weight to 205 and do it for six. Mm-hmm. Right? But now your estimated one rep max you're working with is, is like a good seven, eight pounds less. So you should get that weight, no problem. So you've actually regressed. But you can do 205 for seven. It's close, but you've kind of regressed. But 205 for eight is, is over. Right? So again, you really have to realize that little itty-bitty wins in the gym, but made consistently, is, is, is how we win. So <clears throat> sometimes it, it is doing 200 for eight again, but now maybe a bit more accessory work or a bit harder accessory work. You know, it, it's just that consistent small gains because what you'll end up doing is you'll be like me and you'll nail a good weight and you'll just immediately try for more. Yeah. Right? Not realizing that what seems like a small change. So if I only put 10 more pounds on the bar, that's just 10 more pounds. Mm-hmm. But what the ask of your body sometimes is exponentially higher than just 10 pounds, right? So you do have to just try to go as slow as possible and take every little win. You know, if you've made a win anywhere, if you're sure that you've added one rep and that your form was exactly the same as the week before and your depth was the same and your bar speed was the same, then you owe it to yourself some really good recovery. But you need to really take it easy. You know, you need to get your sleep, et cetera, uh, because that was a giant jump in progress and it's forgetting that and it's it's not realizing that all the stresses in your body add up right so if your life outside the gym is just going to shit like if you just lost your job and then your boyfriend just left you and then they just repossessed your car and you're worried about losing your house it might not be the best time to go in and try for one rep max yeah right like it, it all comes together if you've been sick let's say you got the flu and you're out for three or four days but now you're feeling better and you're like i'm gonna jump back in the gym you have to realize that things may still be off, right? Yeah. So, and pushing yourself super hard right after you've been sick, not always the best idea. You got to ramp back into it. For me um, and my lower back, I've learned that anytime I've been on an airplane for more than three hours, I'm not squatting that day or the next day. Yeah. It just every single time I do that, I travel, you know, I, I fly from Canada to LA, which is a horrible flight with time change. You know, if I get to LA and the guys I'm meeting are like, let's go work out. I'm like, Great idea. And then they want to squat and then I blow my back apart. So you just have to start realizing, again, small wins. And there are times when you don't get to push it as hard as, as you want to, which for me is um, when, when life is starting to get hectic or I've traveled. So you just be smart about it. Right. Um, I sound like a really old man dad giving like, life advice to kids there. And I, I, you know, it's, no, no. it's the stuff you don't want to hear, but it's so true. No, yeah. It's, um, I, I'm glad that I get to ask you about this because I actually remember – um, listening to a podcast episode that you've done, I believe it was with Kino Buddy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you've been talking about the fact that rarely does a guy stop working out in his 40s or 50s because he doesn't like it anymore. But sometimes just the injuries make it just so unlikable, the whole process of working yes. out. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and at that point, <clears throat> when you, I mean, when you take a break in mid 20s, there's a good chance you'll get back into training. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When you take a long break from, you know, at 45, there's a good chance you're n- never going to work out again. Yeah. Right. And if you do, you're going to go back and try to lift the same weight you used to, not be able to do it, and then either hurt yourself or get discouraged. So <laughs> consistency is just so important the older you get. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and you have, um, am I correct that you have a program about this called Progressions or am I? Yep. Uh, it's, it's less of a program and, and more of a, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, it's, it's a chart of sets and reps. Mm-hmm. And it, what I try to do is I took, um, every single set and rep combo at any weight I could think of. And I ran them all through the Epi equation. Mm. And so I basically got um, estimated one rep maxes from 10 pounds to 700 pounds. Actually, probably even higher, eight, eight, nine 900 pounds. Right. Then I took every single one of them and I ran it through uh, another program. And I based it around the mean of an eight reps, an eight rep workout. Mm-hmm. All right. So whatever the smallest incremental increase was. And then you, you would have multiple different set and rep combos at that number. And then whatever one was closest to eight was the one that was chosen. So then what we end up having is a giant chart of sets and reps where every set and rep is a, you know, 0.2 of a pound increase on the last one. Sometimes 0.5. Sometimes I really couldn't find something that worked in a, in a reasonable rep range. Maybe it's almost a one pound increase, but never more than that. Right. And so it's just a way to prioritize your training and your set and rep choices to slowly increase your um, estimated one rep max while at the same time using 
a large variety of rep ranges, anywhere from five all the way up, I think 15 reps, so that you're getting strong through the whole entire spectrum of rep ranges. So you're not just getting strong at four reps. You're not just getting the high endurance at 15. You're getting strong across the board. And then you can take that and implement it into any workout you wish. So I give mine. I give you just the workouts I do. Cool. Um, but really, you could be like, well, I'm going to use this workout from this guy. But where they say just do four sets of eight until you are strong enough to do more, I'm going to stick progressions in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it really just is a new way of thinking of organizing your sets and reps. Right. Very nice. Do you, what are your thoughts on realistic expectations for guys and, and girls to to build muscle and like how, how long does it take to really see meaningful changes in terms of transforming a physique over, over time? I think it depends a lot on um, your age and your training age. The, uh, anybody who's sort of 40 plus can tell you there was a period of their life in there usually as a guy, um, early 20s, all up to early 30s, somewhere in there was a window where it just worked, mm -hmm. right? And, and for me, it was, uh, university was till 22. I had two. One in my, my last year of university, where things just all of a sudden clicked for a good six, seven months. And then once when I was working in the supplement industry, again, maybe at around 26, 27, and things just sort of clicked and everything worked. Mm -hmm. And these were periods of, of just growth. I mean, like noticeable if you hadn't seen me in a month, you'd be like, oh, peeling, you're looking big, <laughs> right? And, but those are interspersed among, you know, years and years of minuscule increases, mm. right? So I think it kind of depends on where you are in that phase. And I don't think it was anything I was doing. I don't think it was a, you know, a, a gym secret I had figured out. It wasn't a nutrition thing. It was just probably a hormone physiology related to age thing it just sort of clicked for me right? right mine were probably later than a lot of guys but I, you know it's it's almost just like puberty right there's nothing you really do nutritionally or or training that all of a sudden allows you to gain like the average male gains 25 26 pounds of lean mass between the ages of, of onset of puberty to end so somewhere in that age you know, between early guys who, you know, full beards at 12 or whatever they are, to guys who don't really get there until like 18, 19. But somewhere in there is a period of just rapid growth that you had nothing really to do with. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's sort of a secondary and a tertiary puberty. It sounds ridiculous. Where muscle mass just sort of figures shit out for a couple months. Yeah. <clears throat> so, but outside of that, the gains are slow. I mean, forcing what I would call sort of unnatural gains, you know, it, it's, in my experience, again, dependent on your height, um, starting weight, et cetera. But you're, you're looking at, people like to exaggerate. I, I would guess it's like quarter pound to possibly pound a month when you really got things going well. And sometimes it's, it's, it's less. So it's, it's kind of when these windows happen and when things start working, your job is to exploit that the best possible. Yeah. Right. But when things aren't working, your job is to realize that slow incremental gains are pretty much all you have yeah exactly how much how much um if you were to kind of graph it out for yourself from start to finish how how much muscle would you say you put on over the years of your training altogether uh, let me do some quick i mean you were 216 so must be at least the yeah i was a pretty <laughs> chubby 216 i won't lie <laughs> a lot of that was me putting on fat in the name of trying to gain muscle to give you an idea there i started at around 179 uh i don't even i have the book somewhere where i actually recorded everything during that process i maybe started around 179 at 14 percent body fat mm -hmm. and i ended up on stage at maybe 169 so i bulked up 216 only diet all the way down to 169 <laughs> and there was you know, maybe three pounds of lean mass gain during that entire process. Right. <laughs> right. So that was a lot of me getting fat for stupid reasons, to tell you the honest <laughs> truth. I wouldn't do it again. Um, I can pinpoint that time as a time where ever since then, gaining weight around my midsection has been easier. Now, it might just be coincidence. It might be an age thing, but I still would never balk again. Mm. That's silly. Okay. So wait, I've lost track of the question. The question was, how much have I gained in my lifetime? I would say under 20 pounds of lean mass. Interesting. I would say that if I were to stop training right now, um, if we were to do this call again in two years, I would be maybe down weighing in the 150s. And I'm naturally skinny. Um, my family's naturally skinny, naturally strong, but you know, my brother is also, he's skinny. Um, 
so yeah, I'd probably weigh around there. So I don't think it's that much. I don't think I've gained 50 pounds. I mean, if you want me to add, you know, to add in the, you know, puberty muscle mass, like feeling how much weight have you gained since you were 15, then yeah, I probably gained 50 pounds of lean mass, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. kind of thing, right? But from an adult, you know, 18, 19 kind of age until now, it's probably 20, maybe even under it. Right. Uh, but the key is there is that, you know, even seven pounds is a world of difference if put in the right place. Because we're not talking just lean mass. We're talking skeletal muscle increases, right? So if you consider your lean mass and maybe only 50% of that is skeletal muscle, right? Then, you know, for me, that means a lean mass of, let's say, 150, 160 pounds at best. What is that? Let's just say 75 pounds of, of muscle mass. So if, you, if I add... 7.5 pounds, that's a 10% increase in muscle mass. That's not bad. So it's realizing that it, the, the number doesn't sound as internet claim worthy as it needs to be. But the, the truth is even a four or five pound increase in the right spots is, is noticeable. Right? The, the only place that you can add that and, and have people not really notice is if you're an athlete and you gained it sort of in your butt and legs. Right? That's where just those circumferences are large enough that it might go unnoticeable in a pair of jeans. But just about anywhere else on your body, you know, adding five pounds of true skeletal muscle would be noticeable. No, that that's great. Great to give people some more realistic uh, outlook on things. Um, cool, Brett. So I kept you up for a while. I guess uh, just to wrap this up with uh, with a question. Well, first of all, is there something that uh, I definitely should have asked you and I didn't ask? <laughs> no, not not that I can think of. Cool. It's pretty good. Good questions. <laughs> Cool. So, you know, you're a person who had been in this industry for a long time, over, over a decade, and not many people can say that. Uh, and I, obviously, you have been into some amazing um, things like you've experienced some amazing success over, over time. But still, it's been just like with training, it's been a consistent effort from your part. Like I see you in my inbox week in, week out, and, and that hasn't changed over the years. And um, so is there any kind of big lesson or um, kind of takeaway from the past 10 years, let's say, that you've learned about remaining productive and uh, consistent with your efforts? Yeah, I think the, the number one thing is if you're going to be writing consistently, uh, you're an author, right? You're not a trainer. Um, you're not a scientist. You're an author. And so your job is to put pen to paper. Your number one job is pen to paper every day. Like if you're going to help people, that's your job. Uh, the number two thing is realize... This industry is full of people who the reason they write is for you to know that they're right, right? So their whole existence is just to be right. And I think you're, the true reason to, to be online and to do this stuff is to help people, right? And so sometimes it's less about you convincing them they're, you're right is to help them figure out what's right for them. It's, it's a bit of a different mindset. But no, I, spent, I spent a lot of time trying to be right online, and it's a... a it's a waste of time. Uh, similarly, it's, I spent the first four or five years online because I was trying to be right all the time, being a bit of an ass, right? And it is, end of the day, it's a community of people with very different opinions on what is right and what is wrong. Um, for the most part, everybody's trying to help. Uh, for the most part, everybody's pretty bright and they're interpreting research in the best they can. <clears throat> if research changes, there's, you know, there's different understandings of what things mean. So generally, if someone's just completely opposed to your approach, you know, there's no reason to attack them as opposed to maybe learn from them, right? Because the, the truth of the matter is, I, I could get you in, in contest shape without fasting, mm. right? So fasting isn't the only way to do it. Um, I could help you get a, a pretty decent chest without bench press. Or with only bench press. There's ways to do it, right? So there is not one way um, to do things. And I, I think that's a large realization is that maybe spend a little bit less time trying to be right and a little more time just trying to be open to everything that comes up and becomes trendy and, and help people figure out where it fits into their approach. And, and you'll, you'll help more people that way than just being steadfast on the I'm right, you're wrong, everybody's stupid, I've got this figured out kind of thing. Yeah. No, this is very well said. Do you have any kind of um, productivity, like any kind of routine or ritual that like you like to have during your writing process? No, um, I'm no, I wish I did. I, I follow Craig Ballantyne. He's a friend of mine. Craig has a lot of amazing productivity uh, suggestions that I, that I know work. 
But my lifelong relationship with Craig is uh, Craig will tell me something that works. I will ignore Craig and try to prove Craig wrong for a couple of years and then I'll succumb and do exactly what Craig said and be right. <laughs> so uh, if you want productivity stuff, actually Craig Valentine's the guy to go to. For me, the one thing I can tell you is because my life is, is unscheduled and fairly hectic. So it's when you start writing and something's working, like it's coming out of you, like it's good, then you drop everything and you write. Oh, yeah. Right? You just, you don't eat, you fast, you maybe, you maybe even skip that workout. You just write. You know, and if it's a couple days of that, that's amazing. <clears throat> but on the flip side, if you're just sitting there hammering away at keys and nothing good is coming out, like if it's a real struggle, you're better off just going and doing dishes, you know, <laughs> just doing something else productive. So ju just like we talk about training, sometimes good things come in like spurts. Writing is exactly the same. So when it's flowing, you take advantage, right? You just, you order that extra coffee. You, even though you're feeling kind of bad because you're taking up a spot in a coffee shop that someone else could use, you just hammer down and you write. Yeah. But if it's not coming out, don't force it because when you force it and then you send out that email, people know. Mm. You know they know it's not your best work. And you'll look back at it and be like, oh, that, that, was, that was not good. Yeah. Right? So that's my, my one advice to writers is, is when it's flowing, you, you flow with it. Right? But when it's not, don't force it. Go find something else productive to do. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Okay, Brad, uh, you dropped a lot of cool key concepts here, and I'm super grateful that you came on. So please tell people uh, where can they find you and what kind of resources would you like them to check out? Yeah, okay, so you'll see a bit of a narcissistic tendency. Um, okay. You can find me at bradpilon.com. That's my blog. You get nice, long ramblings there. Um, on Twitter, where my handle is at bradpilon, uh, you'll find me trying to be fairly witty in 140 characters or less. Uh, sometimes I fail, sometimes I'm good at it. <laughs> on Instagram, you get a really interesting mix. Uh, Instagram, I'm, of course, Brad Pilon. Again, there's, there's the trend of my name. Uh, Instagram's a, a fun mix of training, fitness, nutrition, and, and just my life. So if you want random kid stuff or where I'm traveling to or you know my battles trying to build an outdoor rink, just random, random ramblings, and then Instagram's a good spot to get to know me. So if you kind of flow between the blog, Twitter, and Instagram, you get a really good feel of not only what I believe in, but who am I as right. a person. Awesome. Wonderful. Uh, Brad, thank you so much uh, once again for coming on. It was a pleasure. No, thanks for having me, man. Good talking with you. Hey, guys. I just want to tell you again that your inputs for this podcast will help it grow more than anything. And your requests, ideas, and comments will contribute to awesome content going live on this channel and podcast more than anything. So if you want to contribute, the best thing you can do is to go on Facebook and look up Sustainable Self-Development. You'll find both the page and the Facebook group that is dedicated to discussions and ideas being thrown around. Go there and note down your comments about what kinds of topics or guests you want to be featured on this podcast and YouTube channel in the future. Just keep in mind the general theme of this podcast and my YouTube channel, which is to help people becoming their best selves in terms of lifestyle as it pertains to fitness and general personal development. This podcast is really dedicated to self-improvement, both physically and mentally. So keep that in mind. So thanks again for tuning in and see you next time.